You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today I'm joined by John Danaher to talk about Nosedive, the first episode of season three of Black Mirror, which originally premiered in 2016. John Danaher is a lecturer in the School of Law at National University of Ireland, Galway, and also an affiliate scholar at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. His research deals primarily with ethical, social, and legal implications of emerging technologies. And you can read all about that and more at his very excellent blog, Philosophical Disquisitions, which also has an accompanying, also very excellent podcast by the same title. John's book, Automation and Utopia, Human Flourishing in a World Without Work, was published last year, 2019, by Harvard University Press. In it, he argues that automating technologies threaten to usher in a workless future, but that this can be a good thing. A world without work may be a kind of utopia, free of the misery of the job market and full of opportunities for creativity and exploration automation could be the path to idealized forms of human flourishing. So I've been a big fan of John's blog and podcast for years, and I highly recommend his new book, which I just taught for the first time in my classes. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation about Nosedive. Welcome, John. So thank you, Lee. Thanks for inviting me to be on the show. And it's a great privilege and hopefully it'll be a very enjoyable conversation about Nosedive. John, could you summarize Nosedive for us? Yeah, sure. So Nosedive depicts, I guess it's almost like a present day world. The the technology within it is not particularly elaborate. It's an an American culture, American suburb and office life. um, And a young woman who is obsessed with her ranking on some social media platform or, or social ranking platform the name of which is never divulged to us in the episode, as far as I recall. And she, she spends her day practicing her selfies, taking pictures of her morning cup of coffee with a bite taken out of her cookie and sharing these images in the hope of getting and improving her ranking. She is moving out of her apartment with her brother. She needs to find a new place to stay. She finds a house in an attractive... There's a name that they use for it. I don't know if you remember, something like a lifestyle society. Yeah, or community. <laughs> yeah, so some kind of up scale neighborhood that will further enhance her social reputation and social ranking. She can't afford it. She learns that she may be able to afford it if she can increase her ranking on this social media platform from a 4.2 to I think over a 4.5. And she has to come up with some way of doing that. As luck would have it, well, it's not entirely luck. She comes up with a strategy for this in the the episode. An old friend of hers is one of the top ranked influencers on this social media platform with a ranking of 4.8. And she makes contact with her. She's about to get this friend who's a high ranking individual is about to get married. And she asks the lead character, Lacey, if she wants to be her bridesmaid. And a representative from this reputation management company tells her that this could be the, the key event in her life that would tip her up to a 4.5 or boost her to a 4.5 ranking. So obviously she invests a lot of time and energy in becoming the bridesmaid and participating in the wedding. But on the journey to the wedding, a number of terrible events befall her and her social ranking falls. And so there's then a number of lessons that I guess that she learns from this process. Uh, I won't spoil the rest of the episode for people. So I have a, just a question up front. Were you a fan, a general fan of the series Black Mirror already? Yeah, no, I've been a fan for, of it for quite some time. I did see, I think, season one when it was originally aired in the UK. But then actually, ironically enough, I only picked it up and watched the full series after season three was released on Netflix. And I, this was probably the first episode that I watched after the intervening three or four years or whatever it was between season one and season three. Yeah, this actually is the first episode of the first season that is on Netflix. It's also the first episode to feature an all-American cast. And I want to come back to that later because I think it's also a very American episode. But I just wanted to ask you in general, your sort of impressions of the series. I I definitely enjoy the series. I think it highlights in a useful narrative form many of the 
themes that myself and other you know people who've been dealing with the ethics of technology for years have been discussing and it's great teaching tool if you want to explore these issues with with students uh, but i think also fiction sometimes can render more vivid or visceral ethical concerns or philosophical concerns that people write about in an abstract way in relation to technology that I, as a philosopher or academic, can't do. So I appreciate the series for that reason. All that said, I do think, as with any kind of anthology series of this sort, there is a variable quality to it. And to some extent, there has been a degree of repetition in the series, which can be a little bit draining, particularly if you're trying to binge watch it or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's definitely true. One of the concerns that I had after the series moved to Netflix was I worried that it was going to try too hard to be Black Mirror. And I do think that in the last season, we might have reached that point, but we'll see. Allegedly, there is a a mockumentary of 2020 coming out soon from Charlie Brooker. So we'll see if if he's still got the touch. So let's just jump into this episode. As I mentioned before, this was the first of the kind of all-American episodes And it did strike me as an episode that was written for Americans. I later found out that it wasn't originally meant to be set in America, that originally the plan for season three was that Hang the DJ was meant to be set in America and Nosedive was meant to be set in the UK. But I do think that it definitely fits very well with the, sorry, the sort of digital surveillance culture that we're in right now. So you, in your book, offered two kind of models of where we could go forward with emerging technologies. And the one that you didn't prefer was the, what you called the cyborg utopia, where we merge with technologies, but basically continue to interact in our real worlds. And one of the concerns that you expressed was that these increasing technologies of surveillance were going to become really problematic for us. So I imagine that this world of nosedive was quite nightmarish for you. Yeah, I think the depiction of it in the show is nightmarish. And I agree with you, this does seem to be in a very Americanized episode. This is, might be an insulting way of putting it, but at least to me as an outsider to America, the kinds of interactions that the people have in the show are redolent to me of a kind of American style of interactions, surface pleasantries, which underneath it all, there's you know deep kind of anxiety or social anxiety. Again, it's not unique to America or anything, but it's a feature, I think, of popular media and representations of America. I remember watching years ago the movie Fargo by the Coen brothers, and they commented on what, one of the things they were trying to convey in that movie was this so, social habitus or interaction involving the Minnesota nice culture where you know, you, how are you having a good day? Are you having a great day, sir? And all this kind of thing. But underneath it all, there's no real depth to it or sincerity to that style of interaction. And I think this show captures that kind of insincere, inauthentic social interaction quite well. Yeah. So I think, I mean, that's what I find kind of dystopian about it is the the inauthenticity of the world that these characters inhabit. And also, I guess, behind it all, the, the deep inequality and social anxiety that they all have. I live in the American South. I live in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, and it's not quite the same sort of practice as the Midwestern nice, but there is, of course, the Southern hospitality that on its surface is actually, you know, quite pleasant and kind, but also involves a, a deep kind of gaming of the social structure and gaming for points and status and esteem and those sorts of things. So yeah, it did seem quite familiar to me. In the UK, two years ago, the GDPR was passed. We don't have, of course, anything like that in the United States. And that might stem the tide of this kind of surveillance technology a little bit in the UK. But one of the things that I've noticed when I show this episode in my classes is that students immediately see that there's not really any futuristic technologies in this episode, that currently we are tracked, digitally tracked in exactly this sort of way, that credit score rankings, grade point averages, arrest records, driving records, medical records. 
that all of these sorts of things do together combine to make certain possibilities possible in our lives and close off other possibilities. I'm wondering if you think that something like the GDPR is a kind of bulwark against the, that increasing surveillance of our lives. I think it's probably too early to say whether the GDPR is a kind of legislative or policy-based bulwark against that kind of digital surveillance. There's a couple of problems with the GDPR is that in some ways it came too late, although there have been data protection laws within the European Union for quite some time. And many of the famous decisions that you might have heard of in the US, just striking down policies by Facebook and Google with the way in which they share data between their uh, European headquarters and, and the US, they all relate to pre-GDPR legislation. There was, a, I think, a more robust culture, both socially and legally, around the protection of privacy in the EU than there has historically been in, in the US. That said, we have plenty of these ranking systems where I live, but maybe not as pervasive as in the US. Credit scoring is not quite as big a phenomenon here as it is in the US, although it's becoming more prevalent over time. And so the influence of technologies like Uber that involve kind of rating platform or you know, TripAdvisor and again, social media platforms that involve likes and ratings of people. I think they're just as pervasive here as they are in the US. And part of the problem is that people have normalized them in their lives and maybe you can argue about this, voluntarily accepted them into their lives. And so the regulation is trying to close the, the barn doors after the, the horse has left the stable. So I, yeah, <laughs> that is so funny, John. I wish I had a nickel for every episode that someone says the horses have already left the barn about Black Mirror. <laughs> Yeah, it was a terrible cliche. I apologize for that. No, no, it's, it seems like an incredibly apt cliche because it's the one that we keep going back to here. I'm wondering, do you think that it would be just better to have a centralized system for something like this. Now, there's a lot of worry in the media about the social credit ranking system that is being rolled out in China, and which is often misreported. But nevertheless, the idea of a social credit ranking system, a lot of people have obvious concerns about that. But is that in some ways possibly a better system than what we have now, which is a decentralized and totally opaque, not at all transparent system that has the same effects as a comprehensive unified social credit ranking system? Would you rather know your single social ranking score than have to wonder, add up imperfectly your friend groups and your Uber ratings and your book citations, et cetera? Yeah, so I, I think that's a great question. It's probably, it's probably the question I mull over the most when I watch this episode, because I think it gets to something really important about maybe one of the underlying philosophical themes of the episode, which I would say has to do with the nature of you know, freedom and liberty in society and how we can live a, an autonomous or free life and in a reputation-based social system, which we have and which we always had to some extent. If you look at arguments in... You know, the origins of morality, people have written kind of sociocultural and evolutionary or anthropological histories of the origins of human moral systems. A lot of them argue that it's grounded in a reputation-based social order, that one of the theories by Christopher Bohm, this book he wrote years ago called Moral Origins, is that humans have been selected for less aggression in comparison to other apes, for example, because a reputation for, being, for not being a bully or not being aggressive in a society was a valuable thing to have. And so there was this kind of reputational based selection pressure that made us more domesticated or civilized, to use that in square quotes, than other primates. So, so there, there's a suggestion that reputation is the foundation of all human moral systems. We can explore that argument in more detail if you like, but I think it's an interesting thought. And I, I think that should shape how we interpret this episode. That, our social reputation is going to be valuable to us, I would imagine, no matter what our way of life is. And I guess the question is, what kind of system do we have in place for managing social reputation? And can some of those systems be worse or better? 
So I mean, the question you asked really has to do with the distinction between a, a centralized or fragmented method of reputation management. One of the fears about something like the Chinese social credit system, at least how it's popularly understood in Western media discussions of it, is that it, it has this unified system and it's rating people as citizens of a state. It's not rating you as a, a passenger in a ride-sharing app, or it's not rating you as a financial customer or as a restaurant owner. So it's not rating you in these individual specific roles. It's giving a, a general kind of trust rating as a citizen. Are you a good citizen? And you're suggesting that maybe there's an advantage to that and that at least if you have a centralized system, it can be transparent and people can understand what's expected of them. And uh, depending on the kind of political culture that you have in a state, maybe you have rights uh, against the government that are better enforced or more strongly enforced than rights against private corporations or other entities that might be engaging in this kind of scoring system. I think the, the counter argument to that is that having a unified system might be more constraining than having a fragmented system. Because you just have one social score, it doesn't give you opportunities to find some other, sorry, some other avenue or outlet in life where your reputation isn't so low or something. So if I'm, I'm, I'm bad as an Uber customer, at least I have other outlets in life where I can score more highly. I think about this to some extent in relation to my life as an academic, where I'm ranked and rated by various institutional metrics, such as citation rankings, as you mentioned, or you know, funding one, or how I do on student surveys annually. And I've written about this in the past, that one advantage I find with academia is that there are so many ranking systems out there, and nobody really agrees on what is the single ranking that an academic needs to optimize in order to be a good academic. And that there's a kind of freedom to that then because you can pick and choose the rankings that suit you and live your life as you see fit. So I, I see both advantages and disadvantages to that kind of centralized versus fragmented dynamic. Yeah, it does seem that one of the difficulties about the multiple ranking systems by which we currently organize our lives is that they don't all have the same standards. And some of them, of course, have no standards at all. And that is the real worry. And that is, you know, also the big plot twist in this episode is just what if everything goes to shit one day? What happens? It's just a, a, a series of unfortunate events can, you know, destroy a life. And of course, we know that in real life, that is, of course, true. But I suppose my inclination to say that there is some advantage to having a centralized system is at least there could be standards for it. I think one of the things that I first thought when I saw Nosedive was that nothing has made so clear to me Plato's argument against democracy <laughs> and Book 8 of the Republic, or just the general argument about the tragedy of the commons than this episode where everything is a sort of simple democratic vote. In that way, I think the episode is worrisome because it makes it as if our social credit ranking would be run more like student surveys and less citation <laughs> rankings, although I'm not entirely sure those are dramatically different in quality. But this idea that we're just getting a kind of summary account of opinions, doxa. And at least with a centralized system, there could be some standards, we could make some laws. Yeah, I think the episode is in many ways an exploration of de Tocqueville or Mill's idea of the, the tyranny of the majority, like what it might be like to live in a society where you're entirely beholden to the opinion of others. And again, the problems with the, the fickleness of other people's opinions of you. And this is something that is explored pretty well in the episode, that there's an arbitrariness to the judgments that people render and the rankings that people give to others. There's a scene early on where the lead character, I can't remember her, the character's name, but played by Bryce Dallas Howard anyway. Lacey is Lacey, her name? right. Yeah. And she's in her office. I don't know what she does in her office, by the way. It seems like she it's spends very... most of her time worrying about her ranking in the system. But what, whatever... It seems, like, it seems like she plays on Instagram most of the day. <laughs> yeah, whatever job it is that she does. There's a guy who comes up to her with a, a tray of smoothies or drinks that he's getting for her in order to boost his rating in her eyes. And she accepts one. And suddenly she's a kind of pariah within the office. And some other worker leans over and whispers to her, oh, that... Okay, you know, we're we're all against this character again, whose name I can't remember. I'm, I'm bad with character <laughs> names at this point in my life. There's too many shows with too many characters to keep track of. 
because he's broken up with his his boyfriend or his partner or something and the, and the office has basically decided that they're against him and in favor of the the shunned partner and there's no discussion of why or what he might have done that is wrong there's no justification for this collective punishment of this other worker it's just a fact and this person has to deal with it so i mean that's an illustration of the arbitrariness of social opinion and the problems that you might have and there are other many other examples in the the show where as she's having this day from hell where sure her ranking slowly plummets there are a lot of the interactions early on in that day you can say or there's a certain fickleness again to why she gets ranked down by people or unfairness to the judgments Imagine that if you had a ranking system run by a government, you you would expect them to have to publish some criteria, what they base this on, and some auditing of the system to show that it is an appropriate measure of this. But at the same time, if you're trying to rank somebody's general social trustworthiness or social status, I imagine there is no perfect way to rank that. And there always will be some kind of judgments that go into that rank system that can be called into question and that can lead to a kind of a fickleness to the, the process. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that this is one of the reasons why, you know, just culturally that we tend to diminish the importance of things like rumor and innuendo over more objectively assessed scores is the only word to use here. But of course, when it comes down to it, it it often is these things like rumor and innuendo that are that have the deepest and most abiding impacts on our actual lives and our interactions with other people. It would seem to me that having some kind of a more official ranking system would at least give us a chance to tamper the effects of basically bad rating systems. Yeah, I, I think it could for the reasons that you said. I, I imagine, again, just to go back to comment that I made earlier, it would depend very much on the political and legal culture that the system is implemented in a liberal democratic state with a a strong tradition of protecting, let's say, individual rights and liberty and where the government is held accountable for protecting those rights. I I think I'd be much more comfortable with it being introduced in that kind of environment than in a more authoritarian or dictatorial regime. I'd be concerned about the motivations behind it because the reasons why you're saying that a centralized system would be have an advantage over a decentralized or fragmented system the, the danger with a centralized system is that while it might amplify the positive features of that and reduce the negative features by the same token if you have a bad centralized centrally managed system it could amplify all the negative aspects of it i shared your concerns about a centralized system under something like a dictatorial or authoritarian regime i think that my worry right now is that we are living amidst a imperfect and largely non-transparent system in what is effectively an oligarchic regime where there are a few who have total access to this information and have tremendous control over the kinds of possibilities that it opens up or closes off for most people's lives, but that most people do not understand how the scores they get come to be. And they seem often just as arbitrary as, again, rumor and innuendo. And my even larger concern is that we're not slowing down at all in our move to copy that model onto every aspect of our lives. You and I are both academics and not gig economy workers, but just in the 15 years or so that I've been in academia, so after graduating from grad school, there have been so many elements that have been added to my job and the assessment of my job that is exactly like gig economy workers. And you mentioned student rankings as one of them. Of course, they've always been around, but just in general assessment metrics that are on that model. And my worry is, again, that the lack of transparency and the lack of regulation about what those numbers mean, how they're calculated is something that is quite worrisome and pushes me towards thinking that a centralized system would be better with the huge asterisk that, you know, not under a dictator. Yeah, I think that's that's plausible. The, the, what, the problem that we have at the moment, as you say, is we have you know, a handful of large tech companies that control a lot of these ranking platforms and are doing it in a, a way that is not fully transparent and they're wielding enormous influence over our personal, social and political lives. And I mean, I, I mean, to some extent, maybe there's some 
degree of optimism here, although fairly little in that a lot of these companies are now struggling with the powerful role that they play. I think you probably see that most clearly on a platform like Twitter, where they're mm-hmm. more conscious of their role in political speech and obviously flagging misinformation online and that might have negative impacts on their business model. I don't know. There's a, obviously the a hope or a, ten, a desire to set up rival inst- organizations or platforms that won't have the same kind of speech regulation as a feature. But yeah, if, if there's one element of optimism, I think that there is a, a greater awareness of this problem and a growing pressure on these handful of, of companies to wake up to their social and political influence and be responsible actors with respect to that. You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections which is mostly a labor of love and is, at present, ad-free. If you like what you hear, and if you're hearing what you like, consider donating to us at patreon.com backslash blackmirrorreflections. That's patreon.com backslash blackmirrorreflections. And now back to our conversation. There's another point I think that might be worth picking up on what you say in relation to work. Uh, and this is something I've written about myself. I wrote a, actually an article on my blog called The Tyranny of Academic Metrics. It was my riff on a, a book that was written by Jerry Muller called The Tyranny of Metrics, where I just reflect on the problems with metrics in just in my academic life. And a colleague of mine in, in South Africa, whose name I'm suddenly going to blank on, <laughs> So I apologize to him. He wrote a post two years ago called The Quantified Academic in an Age of Precarity, where he talks about the influence of ranking metrics on precariously employed academics. But of course, as the gig economy grows in its influence and reach, this is a phenomenon for everyone that they're beholden to and subject to all these different ranking systems. And it, I think, induces a great sense of like social and professional anxiety that they feel they have to live up to so many different ranks or optimize their ranking across so many different dimensions. Uh, and I, like, I feel that as a, secure, a securely employed academic, I feel that to some <laughs> yeah. extent. So I can only imagine how much more anxiety inducing it would be for somebody who is precariously employed. And this is something that you bring up in the first half of your book as well, where you're really concerned about this expansion of, of a gig work economy. I was thinking about that today when I was rewatching Nosedive. I wonder if you see the characters in Nosedive as more or less living their lives as if their life was a gig job. Yeah, I, I, so that was one of the points I was making earlier on and when I was make, being very undiplomatic in my comments about American culture, that <laughs> the kind of superficiality to the interactions that they have, the inauthenticity to them is masking a huge degree of social anxiety. I, I think you get that in the episode. There's not much in the episode about work and the kind of jobs that people do or it's not clear what the employment situation is exactly. And what happens if you drop out of the ranking system? Obviously, the main character, Lacey, encounters people who claim to have disowned the ranking system later in the episode. And I guess they're vagabond-esque characters traveling about and living out of their trucks, it seems. So maybe they are experiencing significant economic hardship as a result of opting out of the, the ranking system. But although that's something I wish was explored a little bit more in, in the episode, you obviously see it in terms of the differential services that people are offered. She has to go to a longer queue when she's trying to rent a car because her ranking is below three. If I have a criticism of the episode, there are many criticisms of the episode, probably the last 15 or 20 minutes of it to me aren't particularly strong. The climactic scene where she attends the, the wedding of her former best friend and gives this pretty odd speech. If you wanted the show to be predictable and you would expect the speech to have a certain kind of content, but as it ends up, it has the opposite content where she ends up claiming that she loves her friend, even though clearly what she should be saying is this, that this person has ruined her life and should be disowning them, but she's dragged out of the wedding saying that she loves her. Sorry, that's a long rant or deviation. No, it's a, but it's I, okay. what I do... Yeah, what I do wish they had done in the episode is explore the dark underbelly of the social ranking system in a little bit more detail. And I do want to come back in just a second to talk about this character, Susan, who's the one character we see 
maybe one of two characters that we see in this episode who have attempted to exit the system altogether or go off the grid. But before I say that, I do want to say I find it very interesting that you did not like the sort of lead up to the wedding and the wedding. I actually really thought that was fantastic about this episode and give me a chance to make a case for why. I don't know how culturally weddings work in Ireland, but in the United States and especially in the Southern United States, these are massive social events that have a huge impact on your life. And as a woman, young woman growing up in the United States, especially in the Southern United States, second only to being beautiful, right, is having a perfect wedding. And second only to being beautiful and having a perfect wedding is being the bridesmaid for a beautiful bride at a perfect wedding. And so the fact that this whole episode revolves around her role as a bridesmaid seems really significant to me. It just amps up all of the, what should be really superficial concerns about our own social status and puts them in an entirely different register. But I I can honestly say that final speech that she gives, the maid of honor speech at a wedding that she's basically crashed, she's you know been uninvited to, that is so cringy and just so perfectly uncomfortable. And I know that, Every woman who has ever worried about being a bridesmaid in a wedding thought, oh, there but for the grace of God go I. This is the worst possible thing that could happen. So I do think that there are interesting gendered commentary in the fact that they've set this all around a wedding and not some other kind of large event. But I do want to come back to Susan, who's the name of the character, who's the truck driver. She tells the story that Several years ago, she had been ranked very high in that she was a high four in the system, but that her husband got pancreatic cancer and that their combined social ranking scores were not quite enough for them to be able to afford quality medical treatment. He dies and she just decides that her whole life spent accumulating these social credit points was really not worth it because it didn't end up saving her husband's life in the end. And so she just, as you say, gets in her truck and decides to drive around. First of all, what was your impression of this character? Again, it was possibly a little bit predictable that you would have such a character in the arc of the story a sage encountered on the journey to the the wedding that reveals some deep truth or deep hypocrisy to the world. But we haven't commented on this, and I, I would like to comment on it because obviously the ranking system in this world is about your social reputation. But in in the real world that we live in, and uh, I guess this is particularly true in capitalistic societies where you have wealth based inequality. There is a, a very dominant ranking system which is based on you know, monetary wealth. The, the, your wealth isn't displayed in a figure next to your face when people walk around you, but it, it is communicated to others in, in other ways. There are kind of social cues of wealth and the amount of money you have is an important determinant of how you can access social services or access advantages. And so I, I guess what I, I found interesting was... It was the direct analogy between the two things here that she'd spent her life trying to earn these social ranking points and it wasn't enough to gain access to healthcare that she needed. And this prompted some major personal transformation and revelation for her. I suppose the one thing that I, uh, why, again, I wish that was explored in a little bit more detail is how feasible is it actually for someone like her to survive or to get by in this world as it's depicted on screen to not care about your ranking at all. The other character in the show who you might say is depicted in a somewhat similar way is the brother of Lacey. Right. That, you know, he's suggesting that he doesn't care that much about his social ranking. But from what I recall, he still has a ranking of something like 3.8. And you probably need to care at least a little bit or just enough to have that kind of ranking. I, I did wonder whether there was some degree of hypocrisy to the way in which he portrayed himself. Because again, he, he still had a phone and was still ranking his sister when she left the house. I would I would imagine that in this world, there are probably a lot of people like that who have this kind of bravado that they're not, they don't care about the system and they don't care about the ranking, but on some level, they, they have to just to get by. And the social cost of not opting into the system, of opting out, I would have liked it to have explored in, in more detail. And I felt like the interaction with Susan, as you said, the character's name was, didn't go on for long enough, didn't explore that idea in enough detail for me within the context of the show. 
And I, it also wasn't entirely clear to me what Lacey really learned from the interaction with her, apart from you know, get this depiction towards the end of, that she embraces this I don't give a fuck attitude uh, in the end. And there's mm-hmm. some emotional catharsis to that or some sense of freedom as a result of that. Although ironically, the final scene of the show is she, she's embracing this I don't care, but she's locked away in what looks like a prison cell. One of the things that frustrates me in general when people talk about whatever pessimism or fears that they have about our emerging technologies and technological future is this tendency for people to say, if this happens, I'm just going off the grid. I'm just going to unplug. I'm just going to move to the woods. I'm going to go back to nature. And I think this is the kind of character that we see in her brother, that I'm not really attached to all of this, although clearly could not separate himself from it or does not separate himself from it. But in that attitude or just general disposition, there is a presumption that there's some kind of idyllic, utopic, extra technological or pre-technological life to return to. And that is, those horses are out of the barn. And so I do think that the story that we get from Susan is that she's happy. She doesn't have to worry about all of these social pressures and the restrictions of making nice with people anymore. And she just drives her truck around and we're meant to see it as idyllic. But of course it's not. Anyone who's in the actual life situation that she's in is not, to use borrow your terms, flourishing. And I think that they just put a point on that at the end of the episode when Lacey takes up that lesson from Susan. And Lacey also says, I don't have to play this game, fuck it all, and ends up literally in a jail cell. You write about what you call the the Luddites error. I was wondering, how do you respond to people who have this kind of I'm just going to unplug. I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm just going to get out of this. I don't need this. Yeah. Like what you've highlighted there is something that I should have commented on and picked up on more, which is that obviously the Susan character is appealing to a very common trope and idea in, maybe particularly in American society, the, the notion of the retreat to the wilderness or getting off grid, this frontier spirit getting away from it all. And that's what true freedom is, or that's the, the flourishing form of life. This is something I explored in an episode of my own podcast with a Norwegian philosopher called Ole Martin Moen. And he wrote this interesting paper about the the Unabomber's ethics. Because in, es- in essence, the Unabomber's critique of technological society was along these lines. And the, the Unabomber's life, for those who aren't aware of it, he tried to retreat to a cabin in the woods in was it Montana is where he was based in the end and lived there but it eventually decided that he couldn't actually live the authentic golden age type existence that he wanted to live because technological society was still encroaching <laughs> upon him and still restricting him in some way so he had to deconstruct it and revolutionize it and not wishing to in any way condone his actions uh, but he you know, he's written several books from prison which colleagues of mine have read and commented on over the, the years but in some ways you know, his life is, is a lesson for people who think that there is this possibility of a return to a golden age or a more harmonious form of existence with nature or untechnological life. I think those kinds of claims are deeply ahistorical in one sense because humanity or the human species is in many ways a technological species from day one. Technology is what differentiates us from other animals. And the fact that we create technologies, individuals, social technologies, if you want to get into this, I view certain kind of cultural institutions as a form of technology as well that we have created. They are what enable us to solve problems and coordinate our actions with others and develop the kind of civilization that we have today. And the net result of all of this is that whether we like it or not, we're highly dependent on and we, we rely upon our interaction with other people and also with the technological infrastructure that we've lived or we've developed such that it's basically impossible for somebody to live an off-grid lifestyle. There never was a golden age where we didn't have a technological life, but it's certainly not possible to recover that lifestyle nowadays. And I I would also say that myth of, I guess, Emerson and Thoreau, that this uh, lifestyle that they live by the lake and 
<laughs> at one with nature. There's an interesting critique of a lot of that ideal nowadays, you know, critique of uh, Walden style of existence, that th this was a lifestyle that was only accessible to very privileged elite and who also had lots of women folk who were looking after them and cooking their meals and cleaning their clothes so that they could have time to reflect upon these higher ideals and write these books. So uh, even as it is presented to us as this romantic ideal, it is a, a romantic myth as well. Yeah, I think you're really getting at two really important questions about this whole myth of getting off the grid. One, is it possible? And I'm not entirely sure that it is possible for anyone, but if it is possible for anyone, it's only for people of a certain privileged position already. But the second, is it desirable? Would it even be a life worth living off the grid? Because at this point, despite our delusions that much of our participation in and with technology is entirely voluntary, it just quite simply isn't and hasn't been for a long time. And we, most people, I think, don't even understand what would be missing uh, from their lives if they unplugged, although it's never as simple as unplugging, of course. <laughs> a couple of qualifications to that or comments on that. One is obviously that our technological lifestyle may have and actually does have huge ecological costs. So that may force some kind of resetting of our lifestyles. Although I imagine that as much as some members of you know the environmentalist movement might abhor this notion, I think practically speaking, technology will play a role in whatever kind of compromise we eventually reach with climate change, let's say. Or, and also in the context of you know, the coronavirus pandemic and the concerns about industrial meat production, I think the resolution to that will also probably be technological in some way. Mm -hmm. Finding some kind of technological substitute for factory farmed meat. So that's just one point. And then but the point as well about this fear or anxiety that a lot of people have around technology and how it's changing our lifestyles and the, the need for simplicity, get rid of some of these forces from our lives. And I, that's something that I feel acutely in myself. I, I regularly try to digitally detox myself or wean myself off my habit for Twitter or other social media platforms. I tend to fail uh, on a regular enough basis. But it's, wor it's worth noting that's always been a perennial concern in philosophy. And I, I often discuss this text, but one of the foundational texts of Western philosophy is Plato's uh, The Phaedrus, which is a, a dialogue which is all about Socrates lamenting the technology of writing and how it is undermining our cognitive abilities and our faculty of memory. And it gives us the illusion of understanding and not true understanding. I think that somebody reading that dialogue nowadays finds that critique of writing kind of quaint and unusual. This is something I comment on in my book as well, by the way, because we see the advantages of having a written culture and be able to pass down knowledge and share knowledge. And I wonder to what extent the, the kinds of things that I write about or discuss with my peers and colleagues, the, our anxieties or fears around technology, which of those will actually stand the test of time? Will generations 600 years hence look back and say, oh, why were people so resistant of having a social ranking score? Or why were people so resistant to this of mass surveillance or mass automation. It's obvious to us now uh, that it has certain benefits. I don't know if that'll hold true. It seems to me that there are some technologies that the critique of them does stand the test of time. And I think you know, a criticism of nuclear weaponry, for example, stands the test of time in, in my mind. But mm -hmm. I, think, I think with a lot of these technologies, uh, there's a, a positive and a negative aspect to them. The nuclear technology is, I think, largely negative, at least weapons technology, I should say. You can only defend it because it's protection against other kinds of evil in the world. Social media technology, digital technologies, they have some genuine benefits that are not just a protection against another kind of evil or harm. So I'm, I'm much less sure that the critique of their influence on our lives will stand the test of time. I anticipate that the technologies that will stand the test of time will be those that either encourage or enable we humans to think about ourselves as a species, as a system, as a network, rather than as discrete individuals. At the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links 
to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. Okay, John, so I end every episode by asking guests the same three questions, which I'm going to put to you now, and you can answer all in a row. But the first question is, what do you think is the lesson of Nosedive? What, are we, what should we take from this episode? The second question is, what in this episode, and it could be the politics or the morality or the philosophy or the technology of it, but what in this episode worries or concerns you the most? And the third question is, on a scale of one to 10, with zero being a nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a perfect utopia, where does the world of this episode fall? Yeah, so I think in terms of the lesson, I probably would identify two lessons. One, maybe an, the obvious lesson of it, and then maybe one less obvious lesson that if you reflect on it, you might appreciate it more. So the obvious lesson is something that we mentioned earlier in this conversation, which is it highlights in a very vivid and visceral way the tyranny of opinion, the, the tyranny of the opinion of others, in a sense, that if we are beholden to the opinion of others for our access to all kinds of social goods, that might not be a very pleasant life because the opinion of others can be fickle and subject to fashions and fads that are not conducive to your individual flourishing. I suppose the hidden lesson in it, maybe, or the less obvious lesson for me is the extent to which this world is depicted as a technologically mediated dystopia. We'll get back to how dystopian it is in a moment. But I suppose how similar our own lives are to it and how we actually play a lot of these social ranking games in less subtle ways, you know, in, in less obvious ways than you have on an, an app or a, a social media platform, and how integral they are actually to our everyday lives that we really do thrive on or get by on our social reputation. And I think that's something that if you think about it in a bit more detail, that the episode reveals to some extent. Maybe there's a hypocrisy to people like me commenting on this episode as though it reveals something negative or terrible <laughs> about society because you know we all play these games and we all depend on them. So that's, that's the hidden lesson. In terms of what worries me most about it, again, there's something that is just I'm just picking up on a, a theme in, in an earlier conversation, but it's just that, you know, how close this world is to our present world. And this does not seem to require some radical technological innovation to realize. The, the only thing that is unusual maybe about the technology in the show is that they have eyewear or contact lenses that have this augmented reality display where you see other people's social ranking. But these are technologies that are fairly instantly realizable for us. And we already have social media platforms like Instagram and ranking systems like FICO or Uber that are very close to this world. So it doesn't require an imaginative leap or a technological revolution to get there. We could very quickly find ourselves in this. In terms of you know, how dystopian it is, well, emotionally, I would have to say I, do, I definitely would not like to live in this world, particularly this kind of saccharine, inauthentic social world. So maybe I'd rank it as a two or a three. But if I ignore my kind of initial emotional reaction to it, I might say it's more like a four or five. Because again, because it is quite similar to the kind of life lives we currently live. And I don't hate the life that I currently live. So it would be, uh, be strange for me to turn around and say that it is completely dystopian. And as I mentioned as well, it seems to me that money already plays outsized role already in our social ranking and our access to social goods and services. And it's Although having a social reputation and a social ranking might in some ways be worse than having to focus on having lots of money, there seems to be not as much distance between them as we might like to think. Yeah, that's interesting that you rank it so dystopically. I think, I wonder, let me ask you this one follow-up question. I don't ever do this after people give me their one to 10 scale ranking, but if you imagined a educated public that was not driven by the need to cover their basic needs. So maybe as you imagined in your book, we're living in a virtual world, a virtual reality where people want to be the kinds of people who get ranked well in this world because of their interest in the good, the true, and the beautiful, as opposed to the shallow, the stupid, and the saccharine. Yeah, so three, I mean, three points in response to that. And it's a good question, particularly in light of the book that I wrote, which you're familiar with. One point is that your reaction to 
my rankings of it and how lowly I, I ranked it or how dystopically I, I ranked it. That might be actually partly linked to my own emotional or cultural baseline that I'm, okay. I'm not inclined to be ebullient or overly enthusiastic about anything. So to me, <laughs> like a, a five or middle of the road score seems pretty good, but okay. That's just, that's just one point. Um, the second point is that if you remove the social anxiety from the world, so if, if we live in a world of abundance where people don't want for any kind of material need and you know, access to adequate housing and adequate social services and food and other kinds of basic necessities, then I think I, I would find this a less dystopian world for sure. Because then you're just playing a kind of reputation-based game and depending on the nature of the game, it, it might be quite fun and meaningful and might enjoy it. And I, I, again, I play lots of reputation-based games myself in, in a sense on a, in a regular basis. I have said this to colleagues in the past who find it a strange comment to make, but you know, to some extent I find my life as an academic as a bit of a game. And I, I enjoy the process of writing papers and getting them published. And although I don't fixate as mu that much on my academic rankings like citations and all that, it, it is a fun reputational game to play. And, and this is a sign of my own privilege, which is because I have a at the moment, anyway, it seems like a pretty secure academic job. And I'm, I also work in an institution that isn't heavily managerialist and doesn't intervene too much in my life. It's very different, let's say, working in, in Ireland where I work than working in a UK-based academic institution, which is subject to a lot more kind of managerialism. If, if I didn't publish any papers at all for the next 10 years, I would continue to be paid and uh, treated basically the same and would have a very comfortable lifestyle. So I'm very fortunate in that sense. So participating in that research-based academic reputational game is a choice for me. It's not something that is forced upon me by my current setup. So that, that features to some extent in my analysis of this. But I mean, the final point I would make is that I think it would matter to me how many different games you can play, how many different reputational games you can play. And if you only have the choice of playing one type of game where you're basically just ranked on how much other people like you as opposed to any kind of skill or competency that you might have or other attribute that you might have. I, I would find that dystopic because it would be limiting the possibilities for your life and limiting your options to live a life that is flourishing relative to your own competencies and abilities. Again, that kind of gets back to our earlier discussion of the decentralized versus the unified system. And again, that's one reason I think to favor maybe not a decentralized system per se, but at least a system in which you have lots of different kinds of reputation-based games to play. This has been a great conversation, John. I really appreciate it. Five out of five stars. I would invite <laughs> you again. <laughs> Thank you. I'll I'll send you my review afterwards. Okay. I'll, I'll put I'll put it up on Trustpilot or something. Really do appreciate you coming, and uh, hopefully we can talk about this or some other technology and philosophy related topic again soon. Thank you so much. Yeah. No. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out, and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts.